1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own
0: opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit CambriaInvestments.com. Welcome to the show, friend. We're super excited today to have my longtime friend, Van Simmons. Van, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you, Mab. Nice to be here.
0: I introduced you on Twitter because we always ask for some Twitter questions that we'll ask later. And I said, we're having one of the world's top numismatists on the show. I can never pronounce it. I wanted to get it out of the way early. And to almost everyone responded, what in the world is numismatist? But for those that don't know, uh, rare, rare coin collector, investor, trader. And I met Van, what was it, probably five years ago now, Van? At least. You know, Brilliant. and um, at his beautiful home in, in Long Beach, when a common friend had reached out, Steve Sugarood, who we're going to have on the podcast in a few weeks, which we're also excited about. And Steve said, hey, Meb, I'm in town. Do you want to grab dinner? I said, sure, of course. So went down to Long Beach and sat down with Van and his lovely wife and Steve and one of the top up-and-coming surfers in the world and just had the absolute best dinner. And so was fascinated and and um, I think you're going to, get to hear a lot of it today with, with Van ch- chatting about a world that we haven't really talked about on the podcast yet, which is collectibles and, and coins, etc. So, Van, why don't you give us a little bit of background to help us get started? So first of all, let's talk about you. How did you get immersed into this world? Was it, was it an early age? Was it a late career thing, sort of thing? How did you start to get interested in what's, what's now your career?
1: You know, it's funny, as a kid, my mother and father kind of, my father kind of said, you know, you ought to start collecting coins because they're a great piece of history and things like that. And I was, you know, 10 or 12 years old and I I collected coins, but I was a collector of, you know, old rocks and everything else. But my, you know, pocket knives, everything as a little kid. So coins were kind of a natural thing once you, you know, when you start studying the economy and things like that, and you go into silver and gold and then rare coins. So, you know, I ended up Getting into the coin business, I guess, because my father had made the suggestion that I start learning about coins because it would be a fun hobby. And two years ago, three years ago, my mother passed away at 90 years old. She could never figure out how I made money in the coin business. And a week before she passed away, she says, Dan, you know, you're, you're never going to be able to make a living buying and selling pennies. It's just not going to make any sense. And at the time, I was 62 years old, and it was kind of funny that she was still concerned that I wasn't going to be able to make a living.
0: That's great. So you started collecting from a young age and take us kind of through, I think the vast majority of listeners probably don't have a big background in rare coins. So we may have to start from kind of the basics. So let's talk a little bit from from some. just get some of the verbiage and lingo out of the way. Why don't you give us a really super broad overview of of the rare coin space and then we can kind of start to delve into uh some some more specifics and offshoots from there
1: oh uh, let me see how to explain the coin business in five minutes or less huh it
0: um, we got a couple of hours thorn- take your time yeah i know
1: no it's kind <laughs> of the last bastion of free enterprise you know if you go to a coin show you've got dealers walking around with briefcases filled with money and coins and some of millions and millions of dollars in a briefcase. It, you know in coins and stuff that nobody'd even think about it it's a very collectible area i mean i i've sort of been a collector my whole life and uh, when i started making money i started buying and selling coins on the side and about 1977 78 i ended up meeting my business partner david hall and we became partners in 1980 and have been partners ever since so the coin market as a whole you know is a lot of it is back because of the gold and silver market. Although some of the coins, which are the most expensive, some of the million-dollar coins are copper pennies and things like that. But it's uh, it's an area where you have coins that are brilliant uncirculated, circulated. You have proof coins. And business strikes, business strikes are the coins that you're carrying in your pocket today. Proofs are coins that were struck from a completely different set of highly polished dyes for collectors, you know, in the year of issue and stuff. So and prior to 1858, proofs were not made on a regular basis. They were make, made for, like, visiting royalty or special occasions and things like that. So, And then they started making them, the U.S. Mint started making them in the Philadelphia Mint, starting in about 1858, 1859 on a regular basis. And it obviously slowed down through the Civil War and then it picked up in the, into the 70s. But uh, does that explain most of the coin business? Kind yeah. of the lingo. I mean, most of it is just, you know, you have gold coins, silver coins, copper, and nickel coins. And there's a wide variety of coins.
0: And so in many ways, thinking about coins, you know, it's 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 for a lot of people, it seems like the Wild West. But in reality, you know, you guys started this business and you can probably take us through the early days a little bit. But... You guys also implemented one of the most important, in my mind, innovative uh, concepts applied to the coin business, which is kind of making coins be fungible or securitizing coins, essentially by coming up with a grading standard. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and some of the early days on David Hall about how that developed and how that kind of changed the coin business in general?
1: Well, in the late 70s, early 80s, the coin business was like the Wild West. I mean, you'd go to a coin show, and, you know, I, I'd get people, you know, who'd buy coins at shows and and always think they were getting a good deal at a coin show. You know, your guarantee was 30-30-30, 30 steps, 30 seconds, or 30%. I mean, it was, you bought it, you owned it, and if you'd misgraded it or just something, it was your problem. And by about 1982, David and I came up with a grading guarantee where we guaranteed the grade of our coins. And by 83, we came up with a policy that we would make a daily market with a buy-and-sell spread on coins to any coin that was bought and sold through us. And it kind of revolutionized – that was the first part that kind of revolutionized the market. All the coin dealers thought we were evil for doing it, and you couldn't guarantee this, and you couldn't guarantee that. But the fact was you could if you had a confidence in what you were – the way you were grading the coins and the product you sold and everything. So about 1984, I was complaining because we needed common date MS-65 Morgan dollars, and we were flying to Florida, flying to Texas, different coin shows to buy coins, and everybody would overgrade their coins, and it was really hard. And one day David met me, and he says, you know, we were at breakfast. He goes, why don't we start our own grading service? He goes, because we can buy coins from Gordy. We can buy coins from John. We can buy coins from this guy and that guy. He goes, you know, why don't we just start our own grading service? So we grouped together with about five other guys and who were the top experts in the world and started a grading service and it became popular you know i mean like the next day there was nobody who could argue with it because you had the world's experts grading the coins and then we gave a money back guarantee on the grades of the coins. so in 1986 when we opened pcgs we were in the black the first week and we were in the black the first month and we've been in the black ever since for 31 years i mean it's been a very profitable business and so that's sort of how the grading company and everything started in the market since then has evolved. And part of it, you know, when we were at breakfast I said, you know, you gotta realize there's a lot of wealthy people who would like to buy really true rare great coins, but they don't trust anybody, which, you know, I don't blame them because pride of ownership of a dealer or somebody who owned a coin always felt it was better than what they were willing to buy it at. So, you know, the great you always had the problem with all collectibles where you go to sell it, it's never quite as good as it was when you bought it. And this leveled the playing field. We tried to make a level playing field for people. And I said, you know, sooner or later, there will be a million-dollar coin. But the only way there's going to be a million-dollar coin is if somebody's willing to pay a lot of money for something that they trust the grade. And I remember back in the early 90s trying to figure out which coin was going to be a million-dollar coin. And the first one was was a nickel. 1913 nickel sold for a million, too. And now there's about 200 coins that are million-dollar coins. You know, So, I mean, it's, it kind of opened the marketplace to a, a wide variety of investors. And uh, even Wall Street, in the late 80s, Wall Street got quite involved. And we decided we started an exchange where dealers could buy and sell coins on the exchange, coins graded by our company. And our, when I say our company, it's now a public company that trades on the NASDAQ. So it's no longer my company. I still sit on the board of directors, and I'm a major shareholder, and I'm here every day. But we have about 1,400 authorized dealers around the world. We have offices in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, and Orange County. And so it's a pretty wide network of coins. But it's uh, it's become very active in the sense that you have this market of coins going in and out every day, trading dealer to dealer. And I forgot where I was, but I think that's where I was, someplace like that. <laughs>
0: yeah. but. Well, And this is so interesting because so many areas of investing – the biggest hindrance for so many people is just that emotional response of just not getting screwed. And that scares so many people away from so many areas. And, and the way that I remember growing up, uh, getting exposure to the, PCGS, which is the grading service for coins, is you guys actually, you know, there's there's a sister version for baseball cards. And we'll come back to baseball cards later. But, you know, had given these cards the ability to make them tradable and have some sort of authenticity around it. So you guys have graded over like 30 million, you know, coins, I think I read somewhere. Um, and you mentioned now that one of the cool things to me is that, it essentially it makes the spread come in, so it becomes all of a sudden a much more liquid market because you have uh, kind of established prices where where it's almost like trading on the New York Stock Exchange versus trading over the counter or bulletin board. So, take me a little bit through how you've seen the coin space evolve over the years. So, you know, I know that there's like any area there's been interest that's decades that have more interest and less, but over, so since you guys started David Hall, so over the past 30 years, what's been the main kind of seismic changes, you know, so the grading uh, became one, but what else, what, what do you see, what have you seen over the past 30 years that have been the big differences?
1: Well, to begin with, the grading is what changed everything pretty dramatically. In the economics of the world, you know, it's the loss of the dollar Uh, value and things like that has affected the marketplace. But in the old days, you had dealers who would buy and sell coins and buy a coin at one grade and up at a grade and then sell it at another grade. And so now you don't have that because all the coins are graded and certified by PCGS. but you do have telemarketers who come in and call, you know, make 100, 200 calls a day, and I'm sure some of your listeners have had them where they just call and hammer you on this and hammer you on that, and, you know, people... You can't control that part, but when you said the spreads and stuff have come down, they've come down tremendously, tremendously. so that's made it a very efficient marketplace in that sense. Did that answer that part of the question?
0: yeah, and so um so let's talk a little bit about and this is kind of a similar question, but about interest in you know the way the world's changed and it and it seems to me if I had to my first guess would be that rare coin collecting in general has a little bit of a older demographic. and However, I was ta- chatting with a buddy in town this past weekend. And this just goes to show, by the way, that I-, I love the esoteric nature of this world where we were going to the horse race track in Santa Anita and they had a big beer fest during the day. So it was a perfect day for me. But I was chatting with my friend and he said, yeah, I said, but what have you been up to this weekend? He's in from out of town. He said, I, I hit up 50 banks or 30 banks already. And I said, I- that almost sounds like you're... Um, you know, <laughs> robbing them. And I said, for what for? And he goes, well, I go and I ask, you know, I ask for all their, um, 50 cent pieces because, invariably some of them still have these older 50 cent pieces that are uh silver you know have a high silver content that are worth instead of 50 cent three or ten dollars or yada yada and it's my kind of treasure hunt sort of world and i just laughed because i thought that was so fascinating and then we talked about this for like three hours because i said hey i'm gonna have a numismatist on the on the podcast this week so um but my point being long-winded side story was that it seems to me, if I had to guess, that coin collecting is, is a bit of an older demographic from a couple of the generations older. Are you seeing any younger interest from, I guess, my generation or millennials or anything else? And then that's kind of what I was talking about with the demographic changes. Um, is, is that an influence or do you notice any waves of what's going on and sort of that, that interest?
1: I would say my average client right now is in their 50s. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of clients in their 30s or 40s, but I have a much larger group of clients in their 50s and 60s. So, you know, with the Internet, uh, the tech boom and all this kind of stuff, you have a lot of young guys who've made a lot of money. And in the coin market, you know, you have a couple of different markets. One, the really nice high-end stuff has moved up a lot in price because you have a lot of people who've made a lot of money and have focused on really great coins. So that's priced some of the younger people out of the market. But they're still buying coins. I mean, the U.S. Mint is the largest coin dealer in the world. I think they have 16 million people on their mailing list that they mail out to all these collectors every month, these new products that they make, and they sell millions and millions of coins to new collectors who are buying coins. And some of those collectors then find out they can buy older coins. Like a lot of the U.S. Mint products are new commemorative gold coins that they make. And some of the collectors are now calling saying, hey, I've been buying these new U.S. coins. I didn't know they made Old U.S. gold commemoratives from 1903 to 1926, there were 11 different coins they made. So some of the people will focus and move back into the older coins. But the demographics, I would say the majority of my clients are in their 50s, usually business people, usually people who have made money. And everybody kind of buys for a different reason. You have collectible collectors who, and as you know, Mab, I collect a wide variety of things from pottery to glassware to antique knives to everything, Indian things. I mean, you know, Navajo things and stuff like that. But I I get people who call and they say, you know, I want to buy this because I love it or I want to buy this because I think it's a great value or what should I buy to leave to my kids or my grandkids? And so you have different buyers for different reasons. A lot of the over 60 people are looking, you know, me being included, are looking to buy things that I can leave or pass from one generation to the next that has value and will continue to have value. It's interesting because I've had a lot of, you know, pretty wealthy people, some of the richest people in the world, be clients. And I said to this one guy one time, whose Forbes listed at over $4 billion, I said, you know, what are you trying to buy? Because he was like all over the map. At one point, he wanted me to go buy Winchester rifles for him, and he was willing to pay me a fortune just to go buy rifles for him. But And he goes, "Van, all I'm really looking for is something that's great. If it's great today, I want to make sure it's going to be great in 20 or 25 years. I don't care what the currency of the realm is at that time. He goes. A Van Gogh is always going to have value someplace in the world, and I want something like that. So tell me coins, and it was also guns that would always have value. So, you know, so your demographics. Everybody has a different reason.
0: Well, and it makes sense too that the, the, the fifty-year-olds, because in general, that's who has the money. And I'm just curious in my head if the, some of the advent of Instagram and other areas, because because coins tend to be a very visual. Sort of collectible if that's starting to help. How much of it is becoming international? Because the way that I think about it, I think a lot about um, that sort of investment where... You know, you see Bitcoin often, the transaction volume spike when certain countries are going through economic turmoil. So I just wonder how much you see any sort of China demand or maybe South American demand when things are going poorly, or do you see it more as driven by kind of macro forces like uh, inflation or gold and silver pricing or geopolitical events? Is is there any sort of broad um, paintbrushes you can comment on there?
1: Well, kind of everything you just said there. I mean, you know, when you have inflation rare rare u.s coins are probably the main focus where everybody goes to because they're so tradable and they trade at such tight spreads those in gold and silver bullion but gold and silver bullion are limited by the gold and silver bullion market the rare coin market can go up dramatically quickly now the chinese are completely different in the sense that they get interested in coins and this happened in the last seven to ten years what happened when, after Tiananmen Square and problems like that that happened, and all of a sudden China was opening up and becoming more of a capitalistic society and, you know, letting business go and everything, I, I told one of my friends, I said, let's start buying Chinese coins, you know, because these Chinese people may be buying coins in the next five or ten years. So I'll give you an example of what a bull market can be in, in coins. So I ended up buying two high-grade silver dollars, 1914 and 1916 Chinese silver dollars, one was graded MS sixty six, one was graded MS sixty seven. And this was in the late nineties. I found them in my safe two and a half years ago and I thought, Oh, you know, wonder what these are worth now. And I, I used to own we used to own seven different auction companies. So I called one of the auction companies that we used to own and I said, Hey, can you tell me what these things are worth? And he goes, Oh, Jesus, too bad you're calling me now because our last auction four months ago, they would have been worth like sixty to seventy thousand a coin. I'm going, You're kidding. He goes, no, now they're probably worth forty to forty-five thousand. And I said, well, I'm going to give them to you and let you auction them. <laughs> I forgot. Six months goes by and I call him again. He goes, no, they've kind of slowed down quite a bit. You know, the most I can probably get is twenty-five to thirty-five thousand. I said, fine, I'll just sell them. I put them in the auction. One sold for twenty-five thousand. One sold for forty-five thousand. Okay, I paid six hundred dollars for one coin and nine hundred for the other coin, like ten or fifteen years before. But the Chinese got so hot on the coins that there becomes no price resistance. So the Chinese right now are very interested in their modern issues. And a good example, we started, we opened an office in China about three years ago. And as you open offices, you know, I mean, a grading company, or PCGS, we opened over there. And, you know, it takes years for things to catch on. And we realized that. So we we're going to a show last year, maybe a year, and two or three months ago. And we thought, you know, if we can just grade 2000 coins at this show, it'll help with some of the expenses, some of the marketing expenses, and we won't lose too much money. Well, we ended up grading 6,000 coins, and it really caught us by surprise. We thought, okay, this is like baseball cards. It's going to kind of catch on overnight. So the next quarter, there was another show. We flew to Shanghai and thought, we're not going to do 6,000, but if we can do three or 4,000, I think we did eleven or 12,000 at that show. And so the next show, last August, a year ago, or eight months ago or whatever, we went to the show, and we we're thinking, okay, well, we're not going to do 12,000, but, man, if we could, that would be great. You know, let's not put any number on it. After three days, we quit taking submissions at 58,000 coins with a line of Chinese people out the door to submit coins. And the next day, one banker comes to us and says, you know, I need you guys to submit some coins for grading. We're going, well, we're not taking anymore. He goes, no, you need to take these. They're out on the armored car. And we go, no, we can't take them. And I go, I didn't say." One of the guys who works for me said, well, how many do you have out there? He goes, I've got 200,000 coins. Oh, my God. Yeah, so now he's we, it's a big bank, and he's getting the coins graded by us, and then he delivers them to his other banks below him, and the banks sell them to the general public because the certified coin market in China has become extremely hot for these new modern Chinese coins. And we just did a contract with them, and I don't remember the number, but I think they're guaranteeing 300,000 coins a quarter, which is 100,000 coins a month from this one client. So, it, you know, so when you said something about China, China can affect it quite a bit. Now, the other thing is David, my business partner, got asked to go give a speech over in China. He went to a room, and there were like 30, I guess very. it was a lawyer, and he wanted us to talk to his clients. There were like 30 of these Chinese people in there, and an interpreter who explained everything David talked about, and David held up a coin, and he says, you know, this is an 1804 silver dollar, it's worth $5 million. here's a 1913 nickel, it's worth $4 million. here's this 1933 $20 gold piece, it's worth $8 million, he holds up five coins, and they're all, you know, the interpreter's talking about it, and he puts them in his pocket, and he goes, here's $25 million I'm leaving the country with, and the room exploded, and all of a sudden the Chinese were like, wait a minute, this is a way I can get money out of my country. So we've seen some of that happen now, where all of a sudden the Ch- some of the wealthy Chinese are coming in, and I've had con- several of them contact with me. Several of them contact me, and it's you know sometimes difficult to deal with them, but um, they have a tremendous amount of interest in anything that has value, and the U.S. coins are probably the most collected coin in the world. So.
0: That's, that's really interesting because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to go down the international tangent, but that, but that in my mind has a bunch of wheels turning that, um, we may have to have you back on uh, again to start to talk about that because that, that's a whole other area that I hadn't really considered, which is a lot of countries as they come out of the emerging status, particularly India and, and China other countries too and then ones where capital flow is restricted in many cases china being the prime example you think of potential ways that you know that 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 may benefit and certainly rare coins is one um let's come back to the u.s coin market for just a minute just so we can kind of get a little more perspective and get a little more specific is there such a thing as kind of the the most famous or number one most traded coin so like if you were to say like a blue chip coin, like the S and P, and say, you know what? Here is the Apple of the coin market. Is there one such coin that, that kind of um, exhibits that, or is it a, is it spread across you know ten or twenty? Is is there such a thing it's like that?
1: Probably. there there's a couple like a 1907 twenty dollar high relief is probably the staple coin, you know, everybody knows what a $20 St. Gaudens is. They were made from 1907 to 1933, not every year, but they were made up until 1916 and they started again in 21. But the 1907 high relief, what happened is president Roosevelt went to a world famous sculptor at the time, Augustus St. Gaudens and said, you know, we'd like you to design the most beautiful coins on earth. And he designed the $10 Indian wire edge, $10 Indian in the $20 St. Gaudens. Well, he died a month before the coins were made. And when the coins were actually struck and made, the relief was so high that they had trouble getting the gold up into the die, into the planchet, and getting it fully struck. And they also, when they were finished, that were being struck nice, they couldn't stack them. They would rock back and forth because the relief, in other words, Miss Liberty's knee was too high, the bird's feather or eagle feather or arm or wing was sticking too high, so they'd rock back and forth. So then they hired Charles Barber to redesign the coins. So everybody says, oh, I've got a $20 St. Gaudens." Well, they have a $20 St. Gaudens that was redesigned by Charles Barber. The 1907 high relief. They only made eleven thousand two hundred ish of maybe two uh, eleven thousand two hundred eleven thousand three hundred. There's different numbers out there, but that's sort of that's kind of a coin that's about a fifty thousand dollar coin in a grade of MS sixty five that has always been one of the main coins that everybody looks at. Now you could go to. Some of the more expensive coins, like an 1804 silver dollar, that may be worth two or three or four million dollars. You know, there's real famous rare coins out there. The 1913 Liberty Nickel, there's only five of those known, and, you know, that are several million dollars a coin. But so I think if you were looking for what's the IBM or the Apple stock, you know, a a 1907 Wire Edge 10 or a 1907 $20 high relief would probably be two of the main
0: coins. And and one of the cool things you guys have done is. You know, we we spend a lot of time with academic papers and trying to quantify just how adding certain investments to a portfolio works, et cetera. And um, y'all have developed a whole series of indices called. PCGS three thousand that, that that and had sub indices as well that shows the value and in, in essentially indexes a lot of the value of coins and so we read a few white papers from various professors I think one was from Penn State we'll toss these in the show notes as well so readers can um take a look and you know the 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 takeaway in general was that particularly for the rare coin market if indexed did somewhere in between. Equities and bonds, so pretty strong return. It was actually pretty close to equities, and uh, seemed uh, to to have quite a bit of history in, in various subsets. You know, some that were more exposed to gold, for example, obviously would have a higher exposure to uh, gold markets. But others, like the rare coins, seem to be a fairly uncorrelated, which is which is a pretty interesting takeaway. So I wanted to talk a little bit about all right so the investor listening in who uh, has a long time time horizon and wants to say okay I'm going to start to dabble in you know rare coin collecting I'm really interested in this space let's let's do a real example and so let's say van let's say I have $10,000 and I want to make this a this this isn't a hypothetical I I want to grab Jeff one day drive down to Long Beach We'll grab lunch or something and say, all right, Van, I would love for you to build a portfolio for me, you know, starting out with $10,000. My criteria are such that I don't want to just blow it all on one coin because I tend to be pretty aloof and I'll probably lose it. So um, maybe as as small as two or three coins, but all the way up to, say, five to ten, if you think that's reasonable. And then the second criteria would be that I would like to tilt towards beautiful coins. So I I would rather not just have some like misstamp that's really ugly coin that you know I, it, it's just valuable because it's it's rare. And then lastly, with a tilt, the if you had to decide on on any of the other ones would be coins that may have a little bit of you know, historical significance, like the one you were just talking about um, as well. So what would you tell someone uh, that that would have that sort of request? If you were to build a portfolio for me today, where where would you begin?
1: The coin business has five or six basic areas, um, which would include U.S. silver dollars, which are a very widely traded market. Um, They have 19th-century type coins, which are coins that were struck from the late 1700s to the early 1900s. And by type coins, I mean they had – people used to collect coins by every date and every mint mark, and as the market became more mature, it became more efficient, and people started moving towards higher quality. So people couldn't find an 1849 O such such-and-such coin in a high grade. So they started buying one of every variety or one of every type like a liberty seated quarter with arrows at dates or arrows at date and rays on the back or with motto or no motto because prior to the civil war they didn't have the motto in God We Trust on coins. It wasn't until the two cent piece came out with that on it. So that's a very collectible area. Then you have the US gold coins, which are you know, two and a half dollar gold pieces, fives, tens, three dollar gold pieces, things like that. And the silver commemoratives, and then the 20th century modern singles, which include Buffalo nickels, Mercury dimes, Walking Liberty half dollars. Those are kind of the meat and potatoes of the whole coin business. There's a lot of variables you can go off on. If you said to me, Van, I want to buy beautiful coins, beautiful coins that are good value, I mean, the Liberty seated dimes, quarters, half dollars, and dollars, which is Miss Liberty seated on the front with an eagle on the back in proof, those coins to me are fantastic values and fantastic beauty to look at as far as eye appeal. I appeal. I've never shown one to somebody except one libertarian guy who, or he's an anarchist. He goes, he goes. well, at least it doesn't have some president's head on it. He goes, you know, it's got Miss Liberty, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, those coins are very, very collectible, very, very beautiful. Um, the other areas, uh, the barber half dollars and quarters and dimes, in proof, coin proof for coin that were, coins that were struck for collectors. So you take like an 1875 quarter. I mean, you know, somebody went to the Philadelphia Mint in 1875 in their buckboard and picked up a highly polished coin for their coin collection. I mean, was, you know, but back then it was mostly the Europeans who were buying, the English and the Europeans who were buying the U.S. coins. There wasn't, well, in 1875, that's after the Civil War, there became a pretty active market in the United States on coin collecting. So I put half the money or 30 to 50% of the money in silver coins and, you know, 40 to 50% of the money in rare gold coins. And the gold coins, you have a couple of different options. You can go with the standard 19th, 20th century gold-type coins, like a $20 St. Gaudens or a $20 Liberty or a $5 Liberty or a $3 gold piece. Or you can go with some of the gold commemoratives, which are also actually on my website on the front page. There's an article on why I think gold commemoratives are so underpriced. I mean, some of those, have, they get blown up in proportion, out of price range with telemarketers who push the prices too high, and then when they walk away from them, and this happened in the 90s with these coins, and then about 2005, 2007, the telemarketers quit selling them, and the prices came down 80 to 90 percent. But these are coins that have been collected since 1903. I mean, they have a very strong collector base. When I was a kid, in you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, I always wanted to have a gold commemorative dollar, you know, a a real gold coin. And the only one I could ever even think about would be a dollar because it was less than a two and a half or a $5 gold piece. But so, you know, I would split it between gold and silver. You can go into nickel and copper. It's a little longer term play, I think right now, but you know, you would have to decide, do I want to, am I doing this to make money right away? Am I doing this to make money over five years? Am I doing this because I love coins and I don't care, but in 10 or 20 years, I'd like to sell it for a lot more money or I'm going to pass it to my new child. If you were looking to buy things that are a good long-term place, some of the nickel coins, three-cent pieces that are made out of nickel, Liberty Liberty Nickel Coins, Shield Nickel Coins, those are... I know I'm probably talking Chinese here, and I apologize. Back no, to your it's question, good. I, I, a, I
0: think it's, you know, like I said, I'm going to drag Jeff down there, and we're going to take a bunch of photos and post them in the show notes, etc. But I, I do you know, lean towards the, the prettier coins. I, you know, I, I like... One of the things you said... That I picked up in a, in a somewhere on a prior interview is you said um, thinking about collectibles and where to start. It says if you want to understand collectibles, stop thinking of them as investments and start thinking of them as history. And so part of it to me is is this whole sort of economic history. And I love reading a lot of the the historical texts on history involving economics of the U.S. and all over the country. And so coins are kind of a very tangible bridge to that to me you know also that there were something and you know my my father and my grandfather used to collect coins and we have kind of their, their leftover collections as you know as well as I have a couple of those uh uh change proof sets which are probably only worth about 5 bucks from you know when when I was born and my brother etc so th- that's kind of my criteria it's something look if i if it makes a inflation plus rate of return i'm happy with that if uh, but also that it's something beautiful that I can, you know, share with children or nieces and nephews, etc. So that's my criteria. But so a lot of the um, description, I think, is really interesting. But but some of the ones I was flipping through certainly are absolutely gorgeous coins. So we'll, uh, we'll have to do an in-person uh, video of it when we come down.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, that, that part's pretty easy. So
0: Good. Well, let, let's talk a couple more questions on coins, and then we're going to veer off into some some other areas. What, what, are what's the risk for, you know, so if people are buying and they're not using a reputable dealer like David Hall, so let's say they're buying it on an eBay or just buy it from some coin show, what what's the risk of counterfeiting? Is it something that's becoming more prevalent with technology or less prevalent because of the grading? You know, what, what's the, what's the sort of risk there?
1: There's a pretty big risk. Uh, You know, it's against the law to have any counterfeit U.S. coin. So that's a, you know, the Treasury will come knock on your door and arrest you. But the reality is, last time we checked in China, there were 132 or 113 or 152 shops that were making counterfeit U.S. coins. It's not against the law in China to make counterfeit U.S. coins. It's against the law when they end up over here. So I get client I got a client, I probably had five of them last year who called and said, Oh, I've got an eighteen oh four dollar and they go and I go, No, you don't. They go, No, no, I do. I go, No, you don't. You know, there's a handful of them known and everybody knows where they are. You didn't you don't have one. They go, You no, you don't understand. I go, No, let me let me clear it up. You had to pay cash for it and you met some guy in a parking lot in an airport, right? He goes, Yeah, how'd you know? I mean, you know, there's a lot you do run into a problem with counterfeit coins. I would stay away from uh, – I, everything I sell is prior to 1945, so I'm not a big fan of the newly modern minted things, which includes the proof sets you're talking about that were made in the 60s and 70s or the new issues that are sold today. But, you know, they sell millions of them, so there's a huge collector base for them. The counterfeit problem on – and I'm not saying eBay, but on the Internet, there is a chance of it. You know, to what degree, I don't know, because I don't, I don't do business – With them, you know, are are on that. I mean, usually somebody brings a coin. I'm the last person they're going to bring it into if it's counterfeit. But so I don't see that many of them. We see them in the grading room. Like I just had a guy in here yesterday. Bizarre. This guy comes in a month and a half ago and pulls out some coin, and I about fell off my chair because the last time the coin was seen was 1978. He goes, Well, you know, is it worth about 200 grand? And I said, It's worth probably 500 grand to a million dollars. And so he brought it back yesterday to have me sell it. It's one only coin. It was a specifically made gold coin for the director of the mint and, you know, real, real important coin. And then he pulls out a 1907 High Relief, which is a coin we just talked about. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't look quite right. It looks like it's been polished. He goes, well, I bought that back in the 70s. I said, okay. So I sent it down to the grading room and it came back questionable authenticity so I went back downstairs, and I said, okay, show me what's wrong. And, and there were some identifying marks that the coin was counterfeit, but it was counterfeited back in the 60s or 70s. And this was a coin he spent a lot of money on back then. You know? So you do run into the problem with counterfeits. So the one thing is if you're buying coins, you have to buy coins that have been graded and certified. And uh, you know, make sure you're dealing with somebody who's reputable. So you do run into the problem there.
0: And so for, for someone who's starting out, what are the, so I assume that's a common mistake. Common sense listeners don't buy coins in parking lots. But so w- where do people go? I mean, is it, is it, you know, so dealers like David Hall, but also um, you mentioned some exchanges. Is there a one big standard exchange? Are they kind of spread out? Where, what are some of the mistakes that kind of people starting out make and where should they go, you know, to do it the right way?
1: The biggest mistake people make, and I found this in everything I collect, is the easiest thing to do is spend money so you end up buying everything and usually once you learn more about it you have to sell about 90% of what you bought in the beginning because you're just buying everything so the the hardest thing to do is find somebody that is, you know let's say you decided you were going to spend 10,000 or 10 million the hardest thing to do in my mind is find somebody that you can trust who's going to say okay here's where I would place the money in in a product that I can't guarantee it's going to go up tomorrow or next year or in 5 years but it's always been a great product and and it's you know it's like a piece of property down there on the beach, and maybe in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, the property didn't do much in value, but you know the property still had value, and it was going to have value again somewhere down the line. So you want to buy the right product. The easiest thing to do is spend money. Hardest thing to do is you know slowly spend it and buy over time, and focus on certain things if you like certain things. If it's just a a commodity, and you're saying okay, I want to place you know a hundred or two hundred grand into coins. Then it's easy. You know, you can find somebody who can sit down and select some great coins for you that have good value. And you just have to stick with, in my mind, higher grade. There's like this, in the grading system, the scale goes from 1 to 70. And once it gets to 60, it becomes mint state, brilliant, uncirculated. So you have 60, 61, 62, 63, all the way to 70. And once you get to 65, it becomes very collectible in coins after uh, 1850. That's almost the magic number. A lot of people don't want lower-graded coins. They like the number MS-65. And it's funny because I've had collectors who used to collect Barber dimes in MS-65. They got too expensive, so then they moved to Mercury dimes in MS-65. And then when those got too expensive, they moved to Roosevelt dimes in MS-65. They didn't go for lower grades. They stayed with the higher grades in just different coins. So buying higher quality and buying from a reputable person, and you can find... There's lots of dealers out there who are very knowledgeable and will treat you right.
0: Is there like a is there like an association or is there a place people go find like a list of these dealers? Or? No. no,
1: no. I wish there was, <laughs> but there's not. I mean, there's different associations, but you know, in my mind is just more crooks on there than there are. As
0: far as and same thing for exchanges. Is there a, one particular exchange or is it kind of also spread out?
1: Uh, it's kind of spread out. I mean, you can Google certain coins and find them and things like that. There's uh, Collector's Corner, which is a, an exchange that we own that people go to, and they pay a fee, I think, to get on it and become a member, and they you, you know, can buy coins off there. They can see coins listed. But you still have to find somebody who's going to direct you in the right way, unless you know what you're doing. If you know what you're looking for, then it, it makes it pretty easy. You can just search it out. Now, we were buying and selling coins before we created PCGS. When you look at a coin... We've always graded it to 100, so if we grade a coin 65, in our mind it's 652, 658, 657, which is essentially A, B, C, and D quality coins. But so David and I have always tried to sell just the A and B quality coins instead of, the, in other words, the high end for the grade, not low end for the grade, if that made sense.
0: Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's also kind of like the S&P 500, the way you're talking about it, rated over 65 and higher is you're kind of staying with the quality coins that, that people w- will be demand for going forward. And, and, you know, like, like having a financial advisor, I think a lot of our listeners struggle with, you know, there, there's tens of thousands of financial advisors out there. Most of them, you know, well-meaning. But of various levels of quality, and even the ones that have the designations, kind of like you mentioned with the associations, aren't necessarily um, the best. Or in, you know, in, in certain areas where they're not RIA's that that don't have to follow the fiduciary standard. So trust is a is a difficult thing with investments. And you know, I I don't know if there's any hard and fast rules about finding a, a reputable dealer, but but certainly, if anyone listening, I, I think Van is one. Let's shift gears just a little bit because. I'd love to keep you for three hours, but it's a beautiful soak out day. So I'm sure you're not, um, want to spend all day inside talking on the, on the phone. I may, I'm, mis- sitting, I'm
1: sitting here smiling right now, but go ahead. Yeah.
0: I may misattribute this quote to you, um, when we had this dinner. So Steve may have said it could have even been your wife. I don't remember, but I'm, I'm attributing it to you and. We were talking about collecting, and and if you guys ever visited Van's house down in Long Beach, it's just beautiful. It's almost like a museum. So you see, you know, kind of pieces all over from the, you know, oddball stuff to, like Van mentioned, uh, pocket knives and firearms and memorabilia. He mentioned at one point he even had a tiger in there. But, Van, what, um, a quote you said, essentially, is uh, I was talking about, you know, being an investor in forecasting. And I said, thinking about collectibles and memorabilia, you know, I said, well, what's what's a good idea to, to how to forecast what's going to appreciate? Because to me, like the art world and all this stuff seems so subjective. And and I think you said something along the lines of you want to buy what the generation that's next coming into money coveted when they were younger. Is this something you said? Am I completely yeah. making this up or something? No, that's, okay, okay. that's true. That's
1: true. Uh, the problem with most of the stuff that's being bu- built today is made out of plastic. So it's I have a tough time with it.
0: And I cannot tell you how many times I've been out walking our dog where I think a little bit about that. And, and so you've kind of seen some of it over the past decade, right? You've seen this huge run up in classic muscle cars from the sixties, you know, the Corvettes right. and Dodge Challengers and in other areas. So do you have any broad thoughts on kind of the collectible space on what maybe is is currently popular for your your generation, but maybe any thoughts on what might and, and it reminded me earlier about China and et cetera, what might become interesting and popular going forward and a quick aside is, you know, what may seem undervalued to you today that that uh, could be a good investment.
1: Uh, well, there, there's a couple of things there. Part of it is finding something that is o- older. Things takes a while usually to find out something that's great. The hardest thing to, to do when you're buying collectibles is find somebody who knows. There's a lot of people who know things that are really good, and there's like one in a hundred who know the difference between something that's really good and something that's great. And the difference between something good and something great is like night and day. So when you look at the stuff they're buying today, and you had mentioned pocket knives, I was just talking to a guy, and he said, then he's a big knife dealer out of Tennessee or West Virginia. All the knife collectors are you know, from the south someplace, Georgia and everything. And I was talking to this guy, and he's one of the most knowledgeable guys on earth. And I said, he goes, you know, Van, you know, Van, that stuff you collect, nobody's going to be buying in 20 years. And I said, that's okay, Tommy, just keep selling it to me, I'll buy it. And he started laughing. I said, what's everybody buying today? And he goes, well, he goes, this one knife, and he explains some plastic, carbon fiber plastic knife that he just sold for $24,000 for a pocket knife, and it was just made in the last six months. But you have these new young Chinese guys who have money who are going after that type of thing. I tend to always lean towards something that has a historical background and a trend or a following for I don't like to buy new things that I think, because it usually takes 30, 40, 50 years before something becomes collectible. I don't want to buy something now hoping in 40 or 50 years it's going to become collectible. I'd rather buy something that's had a track record for 40 or 50 years. You know, I think some of the most underpriced things, you have the American Indians who are now opening casinos and are making a ton of money, and they're buying back their old heritage. I think the Navajo weavings, the rugs, I think are tremendous, and I say rugs, because some of these, you know, you could take a a piece of pottery that's 25000 that some Indian made for them that day. Well, in Indian weaving, you had some Indian woman who may have worked on it for two or three years making it, and it's 25000 And the other thing, I think it's overlooked because you have, it hasn't been marketed correctly. This is art done by women, which has been completely overlooked. So I think the, and then the other thing is, I don't know if I ever showed you, I collect Indian piece metals. And 99 out of 100 people have never even heard of one. But starting with Thomas Jefferson, the U.S. Mint made these medals with the the image of Jefferson on the front and two hands shaking hands on the back, a general's cuff with a hand and an Indian hand, tomahawk and a peace pipe, and it said friendship and peace on the back. Thomas Jefferson had, you know, 50 of these made and given to Lewis and Clark, and Lewis and Clark took them out and gave them to Indian chiefs. said, our chief is at peace with your chief, and these were so coveted, that they were all buried with the Indians. And the majority of them that you see today were from Indian grave robbing back in the 20s and 30s where people were digging up Indian graves looking for their Indian peace medals. That's what almost all of them are. And I think there's less than four or 500 in the world right now. And they made them all the way up to Ulysses S. Grant was the last silver one they made. Or no, Benjamin Harrison, one of those. Anyway, but... Uh, It was Ulysses S. Grant. But that's an area that I think is very undervalued because it was made by the U.S. Mint. It was made in silver. It was made collectible by Indians like them and regular Americans like them. They're both Americans. I hope I'm not saying something wrong here. But, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, I think those are fantastic investments, very undervalued. And, you know, as far as new stuff, one of the guys in my office has a a website that he deals in vintage Lego parts, and they're just plastic. You know, and I said to him I go. I go Do you have a lot of me?" Because I've got a, over two hundred thousand pieces on my website. Oh you know, little God. little pieces. You know, and and you can say to my youngest son, who's like a genius, and he go, "Oh, this piece fits this," and he knows exactly what I'm. I'm talking about pieces that are a quarter of an inch in size. You know, they know what everything goes to. So I, you know, there's a collector base for that stuff, but not me. I understand the reason I like knives or guns is because they were handmade and they were made to be used as tools and to find them in mint condition is very, very difficult. Things I like about coins is most of them were made to be spent and people really weren't saving them except in Europe. And and coins also, every coin change Usually represented something like in 1834 they lowered the gold content in coins, you know so the big ten dollar gold pieces got a little smaller, and all the larger ones hit the melting pot because they were worth more money, kind of a sign of things to do. The government was taking gold out of their currency. you know that's what the future was that was the first sign of what they were going to do in the future. so there's different breakoff points for different times in history as to why things were made and what they represent so that's kind of a long drawn out answer no, it's run. good By I mean... your question.
0: Like I said, I spent a lot of time thinking about it because it's, it's such a interesting way about thinking about collectibles. And to me, um, there's obviously a lot of randomness, but I was, I was trying to even think what my generation growing up would have cared about or could, would covet. I mean, something like a first generation iPod, maybe that, you know, in a a box that hadn't been opened or, or an know,
1: Apple uh, Mac or any of yeah, those.
0: computers. But I don't even know what else. You know, so I grew up certainly collecting. My brother was a huge baseball card guy, and so we kind of. He's seven years older than me, so we kind of caught the tail end of the the card collecting um, before it kind of started having massive, massive production. I think it was in the nineties and got saturated. It was a, a funny aside story. Is my mom. Um, it's from North Carolina. And so, you know, my brother and I, every Saturday or whatever was like Christmas Day, we'd go get a couple baseball card packs from, um the store and he could spend hours at Bill's card collectibles in Denver. I remember. Um, and I did it probably because a lot of it had to do just with spending time with my brother, but I also love baseball and baseball cards in general. But the funniest part is my brother had boxes and boxes and boxes of baseball cards. And and I had some, but not as many. And I remember my mom, so she grew up in North Carolina, so was a huge college basketball fan in Carolina. And just to be part of the team, she she's like she would buy some basketball cards. So sure enough, you know, fast forward ten years, who has the most uh, valuable investment? Well, it was my mom who had unintentionally bought like Michael Jordan rookie cards, right? <laughs> and so you fast forward, we, my brother has like an entire storage room of baseball cards, but what's most valuable? It was it was mom, and the same along the same lines. You know, I also read a ton of comics. The kindest thing my parents did to me is they said, Meb, you know, we're going to budget you on on your spending and, you know, you're not going to buy everything you want. But if you ever want to buy a book or if you ever want to read, we're happy to buy you any book you want. So... I kind of took that and ran with it and so ended up buying a ton of comic books and sure enough same thing like one day I I spent all day cataloging the values and mom was like oh we have a few comic books in the attic and sure enough they're like these old cowboy comic books that are worth 10 times more than my entire collection so there's always a bit of randomness but but it's just kind of humorous to me that that my mom is clearly the best investor in our family. A, a couple, a couple quick questions and then we got to start winding down. I mean, this could literally go on two or three hours. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, we may have to have you back on, but, um, one question that popped back in my head was as technology improves, at what point, Van, do you guys incorporate or does someone is the ability to grade these coins become, software-based, meaning that you could have a program that will optically recognize uh, potentially these coins. Is that something you see that's on the horizon, five, ten years, starting to become commonplace? What's, What's your thoughts there?
1: I'll answer that, but then I do want to go back to baseball cards. We had a computer in the 90s that graded coins, and we had a guy who came to us and said, you know, there's this new software. I can build a computer that can grade coins. And we kind of rolled our eyes. And I said, one of my friends and clients was the guy who invented CAD CAM computer software. And he was like this genius computer guy. And I said, well, who all could do this? I said, could this guy do it? He goes, yeah, he could do it. There's a guy in Germany and who can do it, a guy in Hong Kong and myself. And I said, really? So there's only like four people in the whole world. He goes, yeah, but, you know, they're focused on other things. So we put him up in a cabin up in the mountains. And here by Big Bear, and he sat there for two years and studied the movement of the eye as I had graders go up and look at coins and grade coins, and it ended up where I think his computer made either 2.2 million or 2.2 billion calculations in four seconds on a coin, and it would grade the coin exactly the same a million times out of a million times. And so when we had this big presentation two years later, and I mean, the Wall Street Journal was there, the New York Times was there, Forbes was there, everybody showed up to see this computer, which in a sense was artificial intelligence. And he sits down and explains this thing, and I brought the guy who invented CAD-CAM computer software. And when the screen, you know, when the curtain pulled open and here was this guy sitting there, my friend looks at me and goes, you guys are grading coins. And I said, yeah, and he goes... Well, you picked one of the absolute best in the world. So afterwards, I said, Pat, how good is this guy? He goes, oh, now this is two years later. He goes, there's only four guys who could do this. He goes, Rocky in Germany, Billy in Hong Kong, myself, and Lou. He goes, there's only four guys in the world who'd be smart enough to do this. So we do have the ability to do that. But the coin collecting community ended up rejecting it because they liked the human emotion tied to collecting a coin, degrading a coin. So that, that became more important. And so we've never used it. So every once that's in a while, some penny stock company will come to me and say, you know, you can buy our stock. We've got a computer that's going to grade coins. I'm like, yeah, sure you do. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, we spent a couple million dollars building it, and it ended up becoming worthless to us.
0: That's fascinating. And, and, and you know, I have lots of really terrible ideas. We talk about this a lot on the podcast. I, I come up with, almost every morning, I have a terrible business venture idea. And, and my other one was, and I don't know the answer to this, is that, so most of these coins are not in circulation, but to a certain extent, there has to be some amount of coins in circulation that are valuable. And by when I say valuable, I may mean a penny that's worth a dollar or five dollars instead of being a penny. I, I sure. doubt there's any that are worth obviously a million. But I said, I, I wonder if you could apply that same optical technology to be, basically just have a coin star machine, you know, down at David Hall and just... Have circulated coins and dollars go through it. I even heard someone tell me the other day, and I think this is just so wonderfully enterprising out of people is they get dollars and fives ten twenties and ones that have interesting serial numbers. They sell them on eBay, and people will pay many multiples of the 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 price for dollars that have six zeros in a row or whatever. Is that something that would even be remotely viable, or is that just kind of a terrible idea?
1: No, I mean there's no. you know, we have a website I can't tell you the name of it. We have so many different websites but there's there's one where I think it's called What is what is my coin worth? And you can and that may not be what it is, but you can go in there and punch in exactly what it is and it'll show you the value in all the different grades. Which helps a lot of people on that. But what you're talking about doing like a coin machine where you just pour it in and a bunch of coins get kicked out the side and these are worth more. That's a great idea. I just don't know how we could do it. But you know, and then if we could do it in baseball cards and everything else, because, you know we grade you know, I don't know, five million cards a year or two million cards a year, and it's, you know, everybody, nobody knows what their cards are worth. So, mm. which is okay with me. They pay us millions of dollars to grade their paper, so it's okay with me. But, yeah, um, you know, one other thing in collectibles, and I get asked from time to time: Do I buy high grades? Do I buy gold? Do I buy silver? If you want to put something away for five years or ten years or or twenty years or something to leave to the next generation, you want to focus on something that's going to make a difference. Buy something that makes a difference today and 20 years from now, you know, and and you can go back to your baseball cards, you know, what a 1952 tops Mickey Mantle is. I mean, those, those cards, I started buying those in 1982 when the coin market and the baseball card market had come down. I didn't know that much about baseball cards, but I, we teamed up with a guy named tony galovich and we opened a card grade or card buying business called american card exchange and david and I, and tony ran this thing we hired a pr firm and pretty soon people magazine wrote us up playboy magazine life magazine all these magazines wrote us up that these guys are actually buying and selling baseball cards and at the time sports collectors digest was like 25 pages it was a small little paper and they ran an article in there, with, and it had a cartoon of a sorcerer, like a money changer, sitting at a table with a sorcerer's cap on throwing money up in the air. And it says, guess who's getting in to ruin the baseball card market? Van Simmons and David Hall, the two coin experts, are going to promote baseball cards in high grades. Well, the reason being is the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle is a card that makes a difference. That's like the Holy Grail. Not the whole. you know, a Honus Wagner T206 is really the Holy Grail, but it's one of the, it's the high relief, so to speak. And so I was buying those cards, because they were about four to 5,000 in the '70s, they went down to 1,000 to 1500. So I was paying 11 1,000 to 1,700 for these cards. I bought nine of them, and at that time, which were graded mint. In 1987, they were worth 7000 or eight or $9,000 a card, and I blew them all out and thought I'd hit the lotto, and I did really well. Well, by then, we had promoted baseball cards so well that by 87, 88, you had baseball card stores on every corner, and people were buying vending boxes of baseball cards in the late 80s, early 90s. And in the old cards, nobody was paying attention to. It was all the modern stuff. And then when we started grading baseball cards in 92, let's say, by 94, it caught on. And somebody called me and said, hey, did you hear Topps Mickey Mantle just sold for 50000 in the grade 10? Because we grade baseball cards on a scale of 1 to 10. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, that's ridiculous. I used to pay twelve, thirteen hundred bucks 1300 for those. I go, man, talk about a market that's peaked. Okay, well, I was right in the sense that you buy something that makes a difference because that card makes a difference. An hour later, my business partner walks in and says, Hey, look what we just bought. And he throws this card down. I said, Did you pay fifty grand for this? And he's standing there looking at me all fat, dumb, and happy, and I'm laughing at him. And he goes, Yeah. And so we made a dollar bet that it would sell an auction for a year or more later for more money. He put it in an auction a year later. It sold for 121000 to a lawyer. Oh that God. card today, if one showed up today in a grade 10, I just found this out about two or three months ago because I asked the guy who runs the baseball card grading service for me, Joe Orlando. He's the president of it. I said what's a 10 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle worth? He goes, "No, oh, I don't know. 5 million bucks." And I said, well, no, no. I, I said, "Wait a minute." I said, "I'm talking about it." And he goes, "No, man, that's what it's worth." He goes, oh, there's some big goodness. Hollywood people who've just pained through the nose and there was a, a I think it was a Carl Yastrzemski card that sold last year in auction and the thing brought like Five hundred grand or something, and I couldn't believe it. And the guy who bought it called, and said to David, "What do you think about this?" And David says, "Oh, it's a great card. You know, what, what do you say, right?" And the guy says, "Do you think I got a good buy?" And David says, "I think it's a great card." And then a couple <laughs> days later, another guy calls and says, "I just offered him seven fifty, and he wouldn't take the card." And David's going, "What?" And then a week later, the guy calls back and says, "Yeah, I just offered him a million dollars, and the guy won't sell the card." And so David called the guy and says, "Did you really get offered a million dollars for that card?" He goes, "Yeah, but you know, I'm a thirty-eight year old hedge fund manager." He goes. Well, I make a lot of money. I don't want to sell a card for a million dollars. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'd rather keep the card. So some Amazing. of this stuff, you know, it gets overvalued. I'm not saying that's overvalued. I'm just saying there's people who want it more than I do. But things that make a difference when you buy collectibles is an important way to look at it.
0: That's that's really funny. Um, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. So the the, the highest... Coin or baseball card auction? Are they both around kind of that five to ten million dollar range?
1: Yeah, probably. There's a uh, the 1933 twenty dollar Saint Gaudens that sold ten years ago or fifteen years ago. I think brought nine or ten million dollars. There was a silver dollar that sold recently for ten or twelve million dollars. I don't know the exact figure. 1794 specimen first silver dollar struck supposedly. Uh, you know that we had graded and there's some big. You know tech guys who have made a lot of money, and they're looking for places to park their money besides the U.S. dollar or besides any currency, you know. Long term, I guess, Milton Friedman was one of my clients, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and he said, he goes, well, you know, man, all currencies are toxic. I said, what does that mean? He goes, they're all like a burning match. He goes, sooner or later, they'll all go to zero. He goes, the U.S. dollar is no different than any other currency. Sooner or later, it'll be nothing more than a museum relic piece hanging on the wall, so, in fact, his sister-in-law was one of my clients, and she was buying coins, and one time she quit. And I called her, and I said, Dorothy, you know, I haven't talked to you in about six months. You used to call me every week. She goes, yeah, I was buying coins to leave to my son. And I said, oh, did he? Did you buy enough? And she goes, well, he passed away. He was 67 years old. He passed away, so now I'm giving all my coins to Stanford University, which I guess uh-huh. is what she did with her coins. But So people buy for different reasons, but...
0: That's that's amazing. Um, so, kind of along those lines of some interesting stories. Do you have a most memorable? And I'll kind of ask it in, in different parts, and you can pick and choose. Most memorable trade slash collectible slash investment over your career. There's been a lot of interesting things that have passed through your hands. Anything that sticks out uh, in particular?
1: Um. Probably a couple of... One that was pretty funny is I had a lawyer call one time and he said, you know, there's a guy who has some great antique Winchesters and Colts and Holland and Holland shotguns who passed away up in uh, Hancock Park up by Beverly Hills. He goes, I'd like you to go up there and make a bid on the stuff. I said, okay. And I pull up to the front and there's these huge gates. And there's this guy sitting in front of the gates in his car. And he goes, Are you, Van? I said, yeah. And he goes, okay. What's it worth? And I go... Well, what's what worth? And he points, and I said, what are you talking about, the house? And he goes, no, the iron gates. And I'm looking at the gates, and I'm thinking, the iron gates. And I start laughing. I go, what the hell am I going to do with iron gates? And in my subconscious, I was sitting there trying to think, well, I wonder what those things are worth. You know, trying to figure out, like, I was really going to buy iron gates. And he goes, oh, these are the gates that were used in the middle or the beginning of the movie, Gone with the Wind, so on and so forth. And he goes, I'm just kidding. And we went inside, and he had this huge collection of guns and stuff. But that was one of the funniest things. I'll tell you a great story, though. When we had our auction companies. We had a guy who collected coins in the 50s and 60s, and he was a school teacher who just had a really good eye and bought great coins. And when he passed away, his wife called us and wanted to sell the coins. Well, we'd never heard of the guy because all the dealers he dealt with back in the 50s and 60s had passed away. And this guy had coins that were, you know, six figure coins. And so when we announced we were selling his collection and so, so on and so forth, the president of the American Numismatic Association called my business partner David and said, You know, whatever happened to his $1,804? And David goes, well, we didn't know he had an $1,804. So David called his wife. And the wife says, no, you know, he lost that coin back in the late 80s. And he was just sick because, you know, it was a world-famous coin. And we're like, how do you lose an $1,804? So then the guy from the ANA calls back like two weeks before the auction and says, did you ever find the $1,804? And David says, no, you know, she just said that he lost it and was sick. And he goes, well, it doesn't surprise me because when I was at his house looking at the coins, when it came time, this one tray of coins and the 1804 dollar was in it. He was putting stuff in his safe, and I said, "Here's this tray." He goes, "Oh, just put it on top of the china cabinet." He goes, "You know, like it was no big deal." So the next day, David wakes up and he calls this lady and says, "Can you look on top of the china cabinet?" She looks on top of the china cabinet, and there's the 1804 dollar. He put in the auction. I think it sold for 4.1 million dollars. <laughs> Oh <laughs> there was just, that uh, thing would have been sold at a garage sale for hundred dollars, and they would have opened it up and moved, it and all the coins would have fallen. So it's
0: literally making my palms sweat just listening <laughs> to that story. I I'd given, I went to a coin collector in Denver and found just kind of a fun, like Spanish doubloon or something. I forget. Didn't cost very much, and gave it to my my nephew for his birthday, and same sort of thing. By that night, had already lost it. So. There's a, yeah, I think it was exactly like 50 right. or 100 bucks, but it's floating around my mom's house somewhere. We'll find it. Um, Van, we're going to wind down just one or two more questions. We're going to let you go. We've already cruised through the hour mark. Do you have a memorable kind of worst? We asked this of all the investors in our program and say, do you have a memorable kind of worst investment? Is there anything that you, you know, got super excited about and maybe invested in or, or purchased? And, you know, the, the market just bottom fell out or, you know, everyone decided they weren't interested in um, Garbage Pail Kids anymore or whatever. Is there anything that comes to mind?
1: No, mostly anything I buy that's new. I mean, my, my wife got me sucked into these, Oh, I don't know, these little clay houses that they sell for Christmas and stuff, you know, that you decorate and all that one time, and she started collecting those, and she got me hot on them, and I'm laughing at myself, thinking, "Dan, what are you doing? You know this is a mistake, and now they're worth like five cents on the dollar of what I paid, yeah. you know. That, that's. But mostly when you buy older, high-quality things, you know, in, in business, like every rare coin I buy, I usually lose on about 15% of the coins and break even on 15% of the coins and, you know, make money on 70% of the coins, so you always make mistakes, buying and selling coins, and I buy and sell them every day. By, by, I say make any mistake, I all of a sudden I get back from a coin show, and I like, go, God, why did I pay so much for this? Yeah. You know, I end up losing money on it. But now most of the stuff, if I stay with older, high-quality, great things, you mm. know, you usually don't get hurt very bad. If you If you get stuck with stuff that is marginal, a lot of times you can get stuck because more of it keeps coming out. You know, like you and your brother on, you know, when you looked at the modern baseball cards, you know, I mean, all of a sudden there was like, like now, there's almost no market for it. The older baseball cards, there's a huge market
0: for. Yeah. So for for to kind of tie this together for investors who listen to this and they're like, man, that was fascinating, and they want to learn more about the market. What's the best way to really immerse yourself? Is there any books you recommend, or trade publications, or you say, hey, you should just start going to coin shows and reading up? Is there is there anything off the top of your head that would really help the kind of uh, person starting out?
1: There's a lot of books out there, and I don't—I haven't read them, so I don't know which ones are good and which ones are bad. But um, I would think you could, you know, like any like anything. I, you know, I collect uh, California pottery, and I collect old pottery from the early 1900s to 60s and 70s pottery. And uh, I probably in two months bought 20 books and read all of them. You know, I think the best thing is to learn as much as you can possibly learn, and then find a dealer. Like I have one dealer that I've bought all my pottery from. I mean, every single piece. Ex- well, I'm sorry, I bought one other piece in auction, but he told me to buy it. You know, you have to find somebody you trust. I'm a big believer in finding somebody. Uh, it's the same thing when I bought art. I have a couple hundred paintings that I've bought over the years, and I bought probably 195 of them from one guy because the one guy was. I mean, I've kind of known the guy for years when I decided I was going to go into this one area of. I studied art and tried to figure out what area was the most underpriced. This would have been about 2010, 2012 after the art market got hit. Then it was like, what area is the most undervalued and what area hasn't been promoted? You know, what was the weakest area of the market that had desirability and collectability or would in the future? And, you know, I found a guy who wrote about 15 books on art and it was very worth it to me to pay his fee for his advice. So, and you know, I don't know if that's answering your question. You you need to read and learn as much as you can, and then you need, you know, read all the books. But, like, this guy went by his office every single day, probably four to five days a week for a year and a half or two years talking to him because it was like going to college. So you can learn a lot in about the art and business. Easiest way to spend money and then see how much you lose, you can learn pretty quickly. But, you know, that's not the best way to do it. So, you know, read as much as you can. There's so much information And, you know, don't get stranded out in some area where there's no desirability. Buy something that's popular is another thing. You know, what's great and what's popular and what makes a difference.
0: uh, We we had hopped into the library yesterday because I knew I had um, your partner had written a book maybe 30 years old by now, or I don't even know the last edition. And so we were flipping through it the other day, but had spent some time trying to do some research on the coin market on Amazon, and there wasn't... A whole heck of a lot. So Van, you may that may be a, a project for you one of these days to write kind of the guide because there's not a lot of great books that I found. But 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 otherwise good advice. Immerse yourself, start to learn, take it slow. Same thing as investing. Don't jump all in and, and buy a bunch of Snapchat and, and regret it. Um Van, this has been a blast. Uh Jeff and I are gonna have to drive down. We will uh We'll we'll bring uh, Jeff's locking briefcase to to bring the coins back. But I, I
1: can ship this stuff to you FedEx. You can have it tomorrow. You just tell me how much money you want to spend. And no, I drop, I I, you know, I, I, I want to make
0: to I want to make the trip down. I we need an excuse. It's uh to to head Long Beach is only like twenty thirty minutes away, so it's not too far. If people want to find more information about you, uh, what are the where uh, where do they go?
1: No, they can call me. Uh, at my you know one eight hundred seven five nine. 7575, or they can go to my website, which is davidhall.com, or they can email me at van at davidhall.com. I will tell you, though, you know, part of the problem with the internet, I had a client the other day tell me, and I think it's Viber, is Viber a phone thing? Anyway, I guess you can go out, somebody's got my website on some Viber phone number where you can call them on Viber and they'll talk to you and sell you coins, but you don't ever get the coins and they get the money. Mm. And when I talked to the FBI, they they just laughed and said, we get hundreds of these a day. Mm. So, you know, wow. you have these people in South America and stuff who crash into your, get all your information. Literally, they have my website, and Viber has now closed them down, but I heard last week that, you know, somebody else reopened, and it's just part of what happens in the world in the technology we have today, so...
0: All right. Well, don't do that, listeners. Go uh you got you got the direct contact information. And um, Van, look again, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at the dot show.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We'll add a bunch in uh in the van episode and other episodes at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.